0: Hello and welcome to episode number 154 of Turkey Book Talk Thank you for listening I'm William Armstrong here in Istanbul And in this episode we hear from Mark David Bayer Professor of International History at the LSE and the author of The Ottomans, Khans, Caesars and Caliphs a major new history just published by Basic Books. It's a hugely ambitious single volume account of the Ottoman dynasty from its emergence as a frontier principality in 16th century Western Anatolia to its eventual bloody collapse after the First World War. One of the book's central contentions is that the Ottoman Empire represents a fundamental inseparable part of European history not just as the antithesis of the Christian European West, but as an intimate participant in shifting cultural and political tides over the course of centuries. It pursues that argument via an impressively diverse range of evidence that we talk about later on in our interview. But before we get going, remember that you can find our entire archive of episodes going back to 2015 at turkeybooktalk.com also remember that you can support the podcast by becoming a Turkey Book Talk member via Patreon. Joining as a Turkey Book Talk member gets you various extras including an exclusive discount of 30% off the price of all books published in IB Taurus and Bloomsbury's excellent Turkey and Ottoman history series. Every one of the hundreds of Turkey Ottoman history titles published by IB Taurus Bloomsbury is available to Turkey Book Talk members at a 30% discount. Members get a special code to use at the online checkout and that deal is valid for all physical books pre- pre-orders and eBooks. Also, if you'd rather read these interviews than listen to them, then you're in luck because Turkey Book Talk members receive a PDF transcript of every interview via email as soon as the episode is published. You also get PDF transcripts of the entire archive of Turkey Book Talk interviews when you sign up, including many extras that have not previously been published on the podcast. Members also receive an archive of over 200 book reviews written by myself ranging from Turkish and international fiction and poetry to history, politics and journalism related to the Middle East and Europe. And finally I also send links to a couple of articles related to the subject of each episode in the email that I send out to members upon publication which is obviously ideal if you want to delve that bit deeper. To become a member, just go to Turkey Book Talk's Patreon page and pledge $3, 3 €3 or £2.50 per episode. If you're feeling particularly generous and want to pledge more, then of course you'll be more than welcome. But so long as you pledge $3, 3 €3 or £2.50 or above per episode, membership is entirely at your own discretion. There are no prior commitments or strings attached. You'll be free to sign off whenever you want. But now onto our conversation with Mark David Bayer. He wrote five books before this latest one, which were generally more academic in focus. This book is a more public facing history for a slightly more general audience. So I started by asking Mark how, if at all, those previous books led him to the point of writing this large and ambitious volume.
1: What really led to the writing of this book was my teaching. Like many of the listeners out there, I've been teaching Ottoman history for quite some time and have never been satisfied that there's one book that I can give either to undergraduates or postgraduate students that will tell the story of the Ottomans based on Ottoman literary sources, based on how the Ottomans saw themselves in the world. You know, since Caroline Finkel's book, which was published in 2005, there hasn't been another book written by a scholar that is not only for students, but is also readable, and is for any person who wants to learn about the Ottomans. So, It was both for my students, so I can say, well, here's where I present my research plus the latest research, and we can understand how the Ottomans saw their world. And also, I wanted to emerge from this very obscure place that historians of the Ottoman Empire reside. I mean, let's be honest. You know, there's a lot of us now and we spend years reading difficult sources and writing important works and our works are not read. We have to be honest with ourselves. Our works are not read much beyond a few scholars who are interested in the topic. I mean, there are Ottoman historians out there who like being obscure and like for Ottoman history to be something mysterious and secretive. And there are scholars out there who don't even write books, but who occupy positions and chairs. But I feel like... We need to tell the world what we've found in our research, because what we find in our research may change the way people, not just students, but just the general populace in, in the U.S. or the U.K. or Turkey or wherever, how they think about the Ottoman. So, so it wasn't it wasn't the writing of my previous books that led me to this book, but it was more a desire to
0: emerge from academic obscurity
1: and also to have a good teaching book.
0: Now, throughout the book, you talk about how the Ottomans saw themselves as the inheritors of Rome, essentially, the inheritors of the Eastern Roman Empire. And also, you know, part of that is, you know, Mehmet II, the conqueror of Istanbul, is the kind of latest in a line of great leaders from Alexander the Great to Julius Caesar. And one of the central theses of the book, really, that runs as a thread right throughout it is how the Ottoman Empire was European, basically. And some might say that's naive. You know, what about how the Ottoman Empire was kind of framed as the other so often, constantly at war with Europe? It sometimes or often defined Europe as its other as well as the kind of abode of war, the region for expansion. So we'll come on to the specifics later in the conversation, I think, but very broadly to start off, could you just make the case for why the Ottoman Empire should be considered a part of Europe, part of this shared European political, historical and cultural heritage?
1: The Ottomans are an African, an Asian and a European empire. But so often the Ottomans are pushed off into being a Middle Eastern empire, and the European aspect is forgotten about. By Europe, I mean geography, of course. The second Ottoman capital from the beginning of the 15th century was Edirne, which is, of course, in Europe. The third, the final, the greatest Ottoman capital, of course, uh, was Constantinople, Istanbul, from the middle of the 15th century to the early 20th century. So of course, obviously, and the Ottomans have moved into Europe physically conquering territory from the 14th century. So for these reasons, yes, absolutely, Ottomans are a European empire territorially, but they're also a European empire in many other ways. We can think of ideology and we can think of how Mehmed the Conqueror saw himself as inheriting the mantle of the Roman Empire and subsequent sultans as well, especially Suleiman, as we know. They believed that the Ottomans were the true inheritors of Rome. So this is not just because they occupied European territory, but also because they believed that they were the ones who would carry on this great civilization of ancient Rome. That That is another reason. So we have territory, we have ideology, We also have the fact that the Ottomans are marrying members of the dynasty into European Christian dynasties from the 14th century. So if we think of the Serbians and the Greeks, the Byzantines, and other East European dynasties as being part of Europe, and the Ottomans are marrying into them. So we also have this dynastic element, this family element. We also have the fact that the Ottomans very much saw themselves as an empire which is uniting East and West in one universal religion. They thought Islam was that universal religion, if not Christianity. We can also think about the Ottomans as part of European history. When we think about such dynamics of European history and periods such as the Renaissance, if we can think of them as happening not only in Western or Southern or Central Europe. But when we expand our understanding of Europe to include the Ottomans, if we think of a, of a canvas, if we think of a tableau stretching from London to Baghdad, then we can see how ideas are flowing back and forth, often from East to West. We can also see how these processes, if we think of the Renaissance, or if, if we think of the new age in the 17th century of limited monarchy, stretching all the way from Western Europe, all the way through Eastern Ottoman Europe. Then we see the Ottomans as as part of European history. Now, again, it's not saying that we're going to take European measures, European historiographical measures of time, uh, events, Renaissance, Age of Discovery. We're going to accept them in their normal way. And just insert the Ottomans. That's not what we're doing. We're not trying to, we're not trying to make the Ottomans on par with these other histories of other countries. What we're doing is we're saying, if we're going to think about the Renaissance, then we have to think about it in a new way that includes the Ottomans. If we think about the age of discovery, if we think about these other aspects of European history, we can use these categories. We can use these terms only when we
0: include the Ottomans and see how these dynamics are moving East and West. And one of the characters who really illustrates this is uh, Mehmet II we're talking about there. The more I learn about him, the more fascinating uh, and complicated he seems. You describe him as a kind of renaissance prince, essentially, Uh, and among many other things that fit him into this broader European renaissance picture is his bureaucratic and administrative reforms. I realise more than ever reading your book how it was those reforms, as much as the conquests that he led, that had this really crucial long-term effect on the future of the Ottoman Empire. So one example would be that he confirmed this practice of using Christian converts, often from the Balkans, as administrators And that led to the consolidation of a new ruling class in Istanbul, essentially, which was uh, seen as meritocratic and indeed meritocracy was the kind of aim for those reforms. And in fact, that was one thing that distinguished him from his predecessors because that actually, as you describe in the book, caused the chagrin, really, of traditional Muslim Ghazi warriors, the people who had kind of led the conquest of Istanbul. Their power and prestige was actually damaged by the reforms so that's just one aspect of, uh, of how he changed things and how he perhaps helped the Ottoman Empire fit into this European picture. Could you just talk very generally really about Mehmet II and how he, where he fits into this picture?
1: Well, Mehmet II, as you, as you mentioned, saw himself as a Caesar. He, he, took, he conquered the, the greats of the second Rome and he, in some ways, was envisioning a new Byzantine Empire, of course, this time with a Muslim ruler. When I think of Mehmet II being a Renaissance man, I think of him in in cultural terms. And here in London, there's the Victoria and Albert Museum, and they have the Renaissance rooms. And Mehmet II's portrait is in one of those Renaissance rooms. And I always take students there and I say, Well, what is he what is he doing here? And of course, he had his portrait made by Gentile Bellini, a, a Renaissance painter. Also, if you, if you look at the way he's depicted, the, the perspective of the viewer, the, what his dress, how he's framed in a, certain, in a certain manner, the crowns that are distributed around him, this is something that we would also see in what is today Italy. But not only that, but also Mehmet II had medallions struck in his honor, again, by Venetian artists. And these medallions depict him on one side, right? So here's an Islamic ruler who's being depicted. Again, this would be, these medallions would not be any different than medallions you'd see in in Italy at the time. But also on the reverse of those medallions is a nude, is a nude. So Mehmed II also partook in another aspect of Renaissance culture, which was this culture of men desiring boys. And this is, this we see in his poetry which I quote in the book. So this is another shared, you know, these these aspects of European and Ottoman history are either forgotten, or they're silenced, or because they're too embarrassing today. But Mehmed II was a Renaissance man in these cultural terms, having his portrait made, his medallion made, and also expressing this longing and desiring young boys. And in his poetry, you know, I'm writing under a pen name, This character desires Christian boys and the Christian boys who resided in one of the largely Christian areas of Istanbul, which was Galata. So when I think of Mehmed II, I think of this great military genius who came up with brilliant ways to conquer this city, something that Islamic rulers had desired since the 7th century. I think of him in those uh, ways, but I also think
0: of him as being a typical Renaissance leader of the time. You mention it there. Sexuality. This is a fascinating part of the whole story. You talk about it in the book, the different perspective of sexuality in the Ottoman Empire that's not very well appreciated today, not very well understood, not even known by many people. As you say there, it's this tradition of romantic love between men and boys very often. And that actually grew, uh, drew on Greek and Roman precedent in many ways. And it also had this corollary in Renaissance Europe, where there was a similar aspect of sexuality that was the same. And again, that's not very well known either today, I don't think. So this is a really fascinating aspect of the whole story. It's also very complicated because it's also wrapped up in the whole question of status and and age. So you'd have a high status man and a young boy, and it was almost a kind of master and I then in Turkish, you should say Churak uh, apprentice relationship. That is wrapped up in it as well, so as a, a power dynamic that is at the centre of this as well. It's not really comparable with what today we would recognise as a kind of homosexual relationship. It's something completely different. But again, surprisingly enough, that is something that the Ottoman Empire shared with Europe in this almost pre-modern period and in the Renaissance era. And really going right up to the, the reforms of the 19th century when both in Europe and and in the Ottoman Empire... These aspects were almost, uh, to use the term, straightened out in a way. They were the victim of reforms and the kind of legalistic shift that was part and parcel of modernization. So just talk about that fascinating aspect and how throughout the centuries, sexuality Mm -hmm. in the Ottoman Empire had this very different aspect that today we should know more about.
1: Well, absolutely. I agree, I agree with, with what you said and how you summarized it. And again, it shows how when we read the Ottoman sources, if you read Ottoman poetry, if you read these tales of different cities, they collected these different authors wrote books about different cities and all the beautiful young boys who lived in each one. And this was part of Ottoman culture. So when you read Ottoman chronicles, when you read Ottoman poetry, when you read Ottoman sources, all this material comes out. You know, it was always surprising to me that all of these ways in which the Ottomans were, perhaps different than us today, but similar to their contemporaries in Europe, has been just forgotten. I mean, if you pick up the earlier standard histories of the Ottoman Empire, written by scholars... They skip over some of the most crucial elements of Ottoman culture and Ottoman society, including these uh, relations between mature men and and younger boys. It's also the case that one of the things that made the Ottomans so fascinating for their contemporary Europeans was or were the eunuchs in in the court as well. And the eunuchs, also an important and fascinating chapter in Ottoman history that we could talk about both in terms of race but also in terms of gender and these in between categories many contemporary historians of the ottoman empire call them you know the white eunuchs or the black eunuchs but the ottoman titles were not did not use these racialized terms although they did have separate eunuchs as we know for the harem and the, the private quarters of the palace and for the for the palace pages. But that's that's another that's another conversation perhaps, but it's another way in which we should think about what made the Ottomans unique as well as their being similar to Europeans, other European dynasties.
0: Now, the 16th century is another era that really reinforced the comparison, similarities between the Ottomans and Europe uh, according to your book because you would paint this picture of them both being royal by internal religious upheaval. It was really an age of confessionalism so in the Islamic world, obviously, there was this contest between Shia versus Sunni that became reflected in the kind of imperial realm as the competition between the Safavids and the Ottomans, the Shia Safavids, the Sunni Ottomans. And that, as you describe it in the book, resembled somewhat the contest that was going on simultaneously in Europe between the kind of reformation forces and, you know, the traditional Catholic powers so what you have is this kind of rivalry that was emerging on a political level, on a religious level, in two different uh, religions of Christianity and, and Islam. And obviously we could say that those two realms are completely separate, but they were royal by quite similar forces at the time. So again, uh, according to that reading, you know the Ottoman Empire can be situated within this broader religious shakeup, essentially, in Europe, this historic shift when all sides were really consumed by millenarian beliefs, and it really raised the temperature. It was something that was shared by East and West, essentially.
1: Well, I would agree with you that millenarianism and this idea that there was going to be a final battle between the forces of good and evil, and the Day of Judgment was at hand, and that would be followed by a a period of, of peace with one universal ruler that united East and West and all religions, That was definitely occurring in the 16th century from Portugal all the way through the Ottoman Empire, all the way through Iran and South Asia and what is today India. We see this millenarianism, this messianism that absolutely unites East and West in this period. And that's also something that's not too well known. But I wouldn't agree. I wouldn't use... I wouldn't agree that what was happening in Europe, the confessionalization where the church split into three, Lutheran, Calvinist and Catholic, was the same as what was occurring in the Islamic world. Of course, Muslims had already had their split already at the beginning of Islamic history. Already from the beginning with um, the death of Muhammad, Muslims had already begun to um, divide themselves between the Shi'i and the Sunni. So that confessionalization had already occurred. It it became deeper over the centuries as Shi'is and Sunnis distinguished themselves through different rites and practices. So so that, it's not a one-to-one comparison. The split had already happened in, in the Islamic world before. It's true that the divide between Sunnis and Shi'is sharpened with the, the struggle between the Safavids and the Ottomans. But it's not the same as what was happening in Central Europe, because in Central Europe, you had this, you had, of course, you had this war in Germany, hundreds of thousands of people were, were killed, and you had a situation where Christians of different beliefs, as it split, weren't able to live together, and, and the religion of the prince was a religion of, um, of the subjects. That's not exactly what happened in the Ottoman Empire. So the Ottomans, on the one hand, they were sending the Janissaries to war against the Safavids, and the Janissaries' patron saint being Haji Bektash. This is hardly a, a normative Sunni Muslim figure. The adulation and adoration of Ali among the uh, elite Ottoman infantry, the Janissaries, is something that shows that there wasn't a complete confessionalization, that there were these Alid, these Ali-supporting elements throughout Ottoman society among different Sufi orders It's also the case that the Ottomans allowed, or preferred... Shi'is in such places as southern Lebanon, different parts of actually not just southern but throughout Lebanon, to serve as administrators throughout this period. So it can't be a confessionalizing state when it's allowing its soldiers to go into battle chanting slogans that would also be appreciated by the other side. It was a matter of loyalty, it was a matter of loyalty as opposed to being always a matter of having 100% belief, being um, systematized or centralized or confessionalized. So that's a big difference. So the Ottomans had these pockets of Shi'is in Lebanon that they supported and um, allowed a uh, administrative role, and they also did not try to get rid of all these Shi'i, Shi'atistic practices. So, so it's, I wouldn't use the word confessionalization at the time, but I do see that there was a, a sharpening of the division between Shi'i and Sunni.
0: And one of the fascinating aspects of the book, I thought, was uh, your examination of the secularist heritage essentially of the ottoman empire it may seem a bit counterintuitive because there's almost a perception in turkey today and elsewhere of the ottoman empire as being almost this kind of salafist empire where religion defined everything and everything was subordinated to religion Obviously, that's a very naive and simplistic way of looking at things. And your book shows that there was actually quite a rich secularist heritage going back centuries. It wasn't just the later reforms in the later Ottoman Empire that we can talk about here. You know, there were there were secularist sort of uh, strains going back much further, much deeper and actually reaching right to the top. In terms of how the empire was organized, essentially, in the figure of the sultan himself, you know, he was, uh, you could argue, a a secular figure himself who separated religious law from administrative law in his own person. So just talk about that, you know, that secularist heritage of the Ottoman Empire it may seem a bit counterintuitive, but uh, it's a really rich line to take, I think.
1: And this, speaking of secularism and tolerance, religious tolerance, this is also another reason to include the Ottomans in the history of Europe. When we think of the history of tolerance and secularism in Europe, we often look to you know, the Treaties of Westphalia at the end of the wars of religion, the middle of the 17th century. When for the first time in Central Europe and Western Europe, rulers are beginning to tolerate subjects who are of different religions. By tolerate, we mean simply allow to live, allow to continue in those beliefs. And so the story that Europeans tell about secularism begins there in the 17th century. Of course the Ottomans had already introduced tolerance in the sense of tolerating difference from the 14th century in Europe and of course much earlier in the 7th from the 7th through the 15th century in Muslim ruled Spain you already had this tolerance difference, So so it's funny when, you know, if if we're going to write the history of Europe and we don't include the Ottomans, we have a very skewed perspective of when important processes begin. Because the Ottomans had also introduced uh, the idea of secularism in the sense that the secular ruler, right, the Ottoman ruler was a secular figure, he wasn't divine, he um, did not descend from Muhammad or Muhammad's family, he also had no divine right to rule as, say, in England. The Ottoman ruler was a secular ruler, largely, until, of course, with Suleiman, they begin to call themselves the caliph as well. We can talk about that. But the Ottoman ruler is implementing, and his administrators are implementing, sultanic decrees as law, and as law on par with Islamic law. So the Ottomans are ruling through secular law and religious law, and they find ways, especially under Suleiman, he has his administrators find ways so that religious law serves the dynasty, serves the empire, is lined up with religious law, or oversteps it. There were quite a few Ottoman practices of rule that one could argue violated Islamic law and custom, such as the the collection, the devshimeh, the recruitment of, of Christian boys from among the Christian subjects of the Ottomans. This would seem to violate Islamic law. There's a whole list of practices in Ottoman territories that would seem to violate Islamic law, but secular law overruled it. At the same time, the Ottomans also tried to line up secular with religious law, not always convincingly. So by all means, the Ottoman Sultan was a ruler who established, perhaps going back to to Mehmed II, as you mentioned earlier, a hierarchy in which he appointed the leading religious figure of each recognized religious community. So the the Greek patriarch and the Armenian patriarch, much later the Jewish rabbi, chief rabbi, and also the Sheikh al-Islam. So this is, so the sultan, the secular figure, is appointing the Sheikh al-Islam, appointing him to the top of a hierarchy. So here you have religion being subsumed to the interest of the state or empire. This is entirely modern, An entirely secular, a secular way of doing things, even when it's a state whose legitimacy is based on implementing justice, perhaps Islamic justice in the world.
0: They're still ruling through these modern secular means. One way of thinking about this or one thing that reflects interestingly on this is your discussion in the book of the Khadizhar Delhi fundamentalist movement, religious fundamentalist movement that really emerged in the 17th century. And it was a kind of reaction to to what they saw as the insufficiently religious, insufficiently Islamic nature of public life uh, in the Ottoman Empire emerged in uh, Istanbul, I believe. And it's an interesting reminder, I think, that, that these were internal dynamics between different sections of society. So... It didn't define the entire the entire Ottoman society, you know, fundamentalism today isn't the kind of return to a quote Ottoman way, it's just the continuation of one trend of many in society that goes back centuries and in a way we could compare it to more secular or liberal ways of thinking that also have this deep Ottoman heritage. So both of them go back, none of them define the Ottoman experience or Ottoman history they are all just strands that go back centuries and we have to kind of look at the origins of them and look at the way that they interacted and reacted against each other and that gives us a much richer and more complicated picture
1: Yes, with the, the, we, I mean, again, if we, we have to include the Ottomans in European history here. So if we think of here in England, you have the Puritan movement in the 17th century. In the Ottomans in the 17th century, you have their, their own Puritan movement emerging from the internal dynamics, as you say, within Ottoman society, a reaction against many things, a reaction against, again, these Seemingly un-Islamic practices that the dynasty and administration were were implementing, such as using cash for pious foundations, you know, with interest, basically, and and other other different aspects. We're also having um, young men accompanying the Janissaries to battle. They're very much opposed to that sexuality. That expression of, of of relationship. They also were opposed to the the culture, the taverna culture, the mehane culture of Istanbul, and they were opposed to the wide use of well wine, the consumption of wine, but also opium and and other narcotics. They also opposed coffee drinking, smoking, especially they opposed smoking. Some of these innovations. So the Karazadeli's also were opposed to some of the Sufi orders and some of the Sufi practices, they did indeed want to return to what they interpreted to be the pure monotheism, uh, the basic message of Muhammad and the Islam practiced by the first community of believers. They believed that the, the Ottoman dynasty and and, and and society had gone astray from that. This is fascinating because throughout Ottoman history, you have different Islamic movements, you have different Islamic expressions. The the dynasty and Muslims in the society are are constantly trans- Transforming their practice and their interpretation of Islam. So in the 17th century, we see this Qadizadeli puritanical. Reform movement, which again is very modern because these people wanted, indeed, wanted to examine what was in the mind of a believer. And so at the end of the 17th century, the early 18th century, you even have a Sheikh al Islam who wants to send religious, young religious men, religious scholars, students around each town to test and to confirm and to see what Sunni Muslims knew about Islam, how they practiced it, and to teach and guide them. So if the, if there is an era of confessionalization in the Ottoman Empire, it's definitely, it's not the 16th century. It's taking place at the end of the 17th century due to the Qadizadilis. Now there will be a backlash against this, and that Sheikh al-Islam will be executed, and there will be a turn from Puritanism to pleasure we see in the reign of Ahmed III in the, in the beginning, the first third of the 18th century. So the Ottomans are always going through these waves. We haven't talked about Islam as practiced amongst the, early, the earliest Ottomans, Osman and, and Orhan and so on. Many of these Islamic practices that Osman and Orhan accepted as Muslims, Muslims today in, in Turkey would not accept. They wouldn't call those people Muslims because their beliefs and practices were too beyond, too far beyond the, the, what would be tolerable today in Turkish society for belief and practice. But, but the Ottomans moved with different Muslims. The Ottoman rulers had different Sufi advisors and spiritualists in their circle from the beginning to end. And we see from the late 13th century with Osman all the way through Abdul Hamid's time, the turn of the 20th century, we see these different kinds of spiritual advisors ranging from what one scholar has called, and what I use in the book, deviant dervishes—people who purposely violate all the the morals and manners of society—to remind them that basically we all die and and we need to seek God, ranging from those individuals all the way to the kind of advisors that Abdul Hamid
0: II had, who would be at home in Turkey today. Now, I want to change focus a bit here, pushing the timeline forward a bit to. Uh to the 19th century, the late 18th century really, the, the period of, of or, or modernization steps that started in the military and then gradually throughout the 19th century were extended really to, to all forms of administration, of social order and political order in the Ottoman Empire. And obviously that came to its fruition really in the Tanzimat Decree in the mid-19th century. And this is sometimes characterised as a westernising process but it's probably better to describe it as a a centralising, modernising process that the Empire went through, top-down process that uh, really reformed many aspects of the way that the Ottoman Empire administered itself. And part of it was a move really to optimistically really try to win the loyalty and patriotism essentially of religious and national minorities to the Ottoman state. So it was... One part of it is arguably this attempt to create this Ottoman identity that transcended all the many religious and ethnic groups in the empire and to basically form Ottomans out of them. And obviously that aim failed essentially. I mean gradually this, this process it failed because it, it gave way to harsher measures in subsequent decades. And it failed to really win that uh, loyalty of minority groups. And your book describes this process step by step. And essentially it was how a lot of those reforms that were introduced to push forward equality essentially between various religious groups actually exacerbated nationalism, exacerbated difference and failed to engender this greater loyalty to the state. So what I want to ask you is, you know, was the failure of this optimistic attempt to create this kind of inclusive Ottomanism, was that inevitable in your view? Or do you think things could have taken a different turn?
1: Well, again, when we think about the Ottoman dynasty and administration in the 19th century, the empire Again, we have to bring it into the context of European, as well as, of course, uh, Eurasian history. And we compare it and we think about what is happening, what other empires are doing. And the Ottomans have several problems. I mean, one problem is the Janissaries. They realize, the dynasty realizes that they're becoming the puppets of their elite soldiers. And they realize they're also losing wars. They're also, from the 18th century, they're losing territory. They also understand that these other empires are engaging in new measures, creating new armies and, fu- and new technology and are surpassing them. And so, so they realize, they, they know what's happening. And so from the early 19th century to the end of empire, well, all the way back to the French Revolution, all the way back to 1789, from 1789 to 1918, so that long period, Ottoman leaders be they sultans, be they dictators such as Talat Pasha, be they administrators, be they intellectuals such as the Young Ottoman Movement or the CUP, the Committee of Union and Progress, all these people, all these men are trying to find ways to to save the empire. They're not trying trying to create a national state or anything like that, but they're trying, they, they realize that things are falling apart. So of course, the first step in 1826 Finally, after efforts for the last generation, finally in 1826, to destroy the Janissaries and to create a new army. This was a step, um, slaughtering thousands of Janissaries and, and also executing the, the Jewish officials who were affiliated with the Janissary, with the Janissaries. The three leading Jews in the empire were executed as well. So there's this this idea that they have to reform the military to stop losing territory, also to to stop this dangerous situation where the the janissaries and the army they were overthrowing sultans and dictating who was in power. So the dynasty tries to step up and tries to create a new army. So this is this is one of the main reforms. As you mentioned, the Ottomans tried beginning in 1839, 1856 are trying to create a new social contract or a new governing contract between the rulers and the subjects. And whereas in the past, for centuries, the Ottomans had built this system of tolerance. Again, tolerance meaning simply that they allowed these people to be different in return for agreeing to a hierarchy, a hierarchy that was based on gender, a hierarchy that was based on religion, and a hierarchy that was based on class. So now the Ottomans are going to try from the middle of the 19th century to replace those hierarchies. Now, how genuinely they wanted to replace them is, is another question, but are going to try to allow to get rid of tolerance, in a sense. So, so no longer will you have a ruler tolerating subjects, but making subjects into citizens and making those citizens equal to each other throughout the 19th century. This is the This is the attempt. Now there's a question with how much Muslims wanted to be made equal to Christians and Jews, but there's also the equal question of how much the Jewish and Christian communities wanted to relinquish their distinctness and their separation. So the Ottomans tried this impossible, this impossible thing, which was to grant equality and try to create an Ottoman public while still recognizing religious legal minorities. Now, they slowly took away the distinction between the different religious groups, Muslim, Christian, and Jewish, but in the end, they they weren't able to. And as you mentioned, of course, we can throw in the mix the different communities in the empire, the different constituent elements of the empire, who began to think that, yes, indeed, they wanted to hold on to their separateness and maybe even accentuate it. And we do have the idea of nationalism that is, of course, by the 18th century, begins to enter into the empire. And we see Greek and Arab and Armenian nationalisms, for example, but also, of course, the Bulgarian and Macedonian and Greek nationalisms. And these will motivate people to no longer want to be part of the empire or to demand more from the empire that
0: the regime is willing to grant them. And one of the fascinating chapters in the book that I really want to dwell on is titled Looking Within, and it's about Ottoman Orientalism. And it talks about how Ottoman elites, particularly during this modernization period, this modernization process, looked at internal others as backward, savage, wild, primitive, basically in need of modernization, in need of civilization. So you talk in the book about how, you know, as one example, Abdul Hamid II comparing Kurds and nomadic tribes in eastern Anatolia to, quote, the savage tribes in America. And basically it was the adoption of this kind of civilizing mission towards various internal communities on the periphery very often, bringing them into this centralization and modernization process so can we just dwell on that chapter because it was a really interesting mind-bending chapter in which these bigger concepts of you know orientalism which we tend to look at on a global scale or at least on an international scale between different civilizations essentially actually that can also be applied as an idea within political cultures themselves and the ottoman empire really does demonstrate that
1: Right. I think this is, again, this is another way to incorporate the Ottomans into European history while at the same time rewriting European history, not just fitting the Ottomans into these categories and say, okay, Orientalism, we know what that is. This is how the West, the Occident, looked down upon and then subjected the East. No, but but then seeing how these concepts then, finally concepts are traveling west to east from the 18th century, how these concepts of Orientalism, of savage, of civilized, have been or are consumed by the Ottoman elite and then used on the groups that they see as their own Orient. So the way they, the elite begins to write about Arabs and about Kurds and about the Bedouin, and even sometimes about women and also nomadic groups. So this is new. These are new ideologies in the 19th century into the 20th century, and they have a huge impact on how the elites and the regime views its subjects, how it treats them, and then this will also have an impact on the end of empire. And uh, I could say more about that in a bit. But the But the idea that these groups these nomads, these Bedouin, these Arabs in different parts of the, ter- of the empire, that they need to be settled down, that they need to be educated, that new schools need to be built in, their, in those regions, that they need to be converted to a normative Sunni Islam that would be recognized today in Turkey, that other practices, Shi'ism or Alevism or what have you, need to be suppressed, This is, again, this is not something happening in the 16th century, but this is happening in the 19th century, as the Hamidian regime also adopts those other tools of empire that we see the British, French, and others adopting. So with the rail and the telegraph and the steamship and with... All these other measures to control populations. They're also trying to transform the way Islam is practiced and how it is defined in the empire. And they and they target these different groups. In the book, I talk about I, I quote the different ways they refer to the people that they are trying to
0: change. And indeed, it is the language of Orientalism. We talked earlier about how this modernization process ultimately failed because it failed to save the empire, which was ultimately the aim of various modernizing and centralizing reforms. But at the same time, it, it was successful in the sense that it changed things fundamentally and laid the foundation, perhaps arguably, for the, the later kind of Republican reforms that emerged. We kind of think of, of the of the Republican era as being this kind of tabula rasa, building on on no foundations at all, but obviously that's not true, it goes back decades. but. Anyway, the modernization basically failed because the Ottoman Empire collapsed obviously in the First World War and uh, various national groups continued to break off from the empire declare independence and gradually as that process happened obviously towards the final years of the before the collapse uh, of the empire in the First World War there was a hardening of sentiments and the failure that people saw of modernization to really keep a strong hand on the tiller and to save the empire essentially became a key lesson for certain nationalists because they saw that as proof that basically a strong hand was needed to hold things together and it really made the atmosphere very hard in Istanbul. The hopes of earlier reforms had arguably proved naive according to those those figures and obviously we saw that in the First World War with the Armenian Genocide and your book gives this very unflinching account really. It leaves little doubt uh, as to what was going on. But it does end up actually with the relatively conservative estimate of the numbers killed of, I think, between, you say, six hundred and fifty thousand to eight hundred thousand people. And uh, that's actually lower than a lot of the estimates that often get made these days. Just talk about how you came up with that figure and also more generally, how did you approach that whole subject and the kind of preceding years that led up to it and the aftermath?
1: These are great questions. Uh, we often say that Ataturk, Mustafa Kemal, is the founder of modern Turkey, but perhaps it was Talat Pasha, or perhaps the founder of modern Turkey was Abdülhamid II, because all these processes of modernization, of literacy campaigns, of education, of new schools, of marginalizing the empire, of expelling, of annihilating groups that were seen as not being able to belong this process these processes started with Abdülhamid II they reached their their Pinnacle with the Talaq Pasha but then they were continued by Mustafa Kemal Mustafa Kemal is a product of the CUP in this late 19th century the schools that Abdulhamid II established so you could think about what responsibility each man has for creating modern Turkey now about about your your other question about what happened to the Armenians during the First World War. Again, let's go back to the discussion about tolerance. Tolerance is something that a ruler, a prince, a king, a sultan can give or take away. So for centuries, the Ottomans had tolerated difference and allowed Muslims, Christians, Jews to be different. It allowed Christians and Jews to exist in the empire. But because it was tolerance, because it wasn't coexistence or equality, or because the Ottomans, I mean, when you read the Ottoman material, they never accepted Christianity or Judaism as valid religions. Yes, Christians and Jews were tolerated people. They were protected people. But when you read the Islamic law court records, the scribes in the Islamic law courts call Christianity a false religion. So this is this is tolerance. This is when you put up with something that you may dislike the Ottomans were very practical they needed Christians and Jews in the empire the empire was very in the early years was very much a syncretistic collaboration between Christian and Islamizing Christians and Muslims and Jews so the Ottomans were very practical but tolerance is something from the top down tolerance can be given but then at the end of empire under Talat Pasha the dictator Talat Pasha and his regime that tolerance was taken away And Armenians were no longer accepted as a fundamental element of the society. Now, I like to argue that out of all events in Ottoman history, the Armenian genocide is probably one of the most well-documented. And I don't mean documented by American eyewitnesses or Armenian survivors or the French or the Italians or the British. I say we know the most about the Armenian genocide from the words, the telegrams, the autobiographical accounts of the perpetrators, and several scholars have shown how, after the genocide, in their autobiographies, these people told us exactly what they did, and there's no reason to doubt the words of the perpetrators, the the Ottoman Muslim perpetrators. So, if we take the records of the trials that were held in 1919 and which found the leaders of the regime guilty and sentenced them to death for acting as a criminal group pretending to be a political party, basically was the judgment, for their crimes. If we just look at those trial records, what are they based on? They're not based on Armenian or American or German or any other sources. They are based on the words and the confessions and the telegrams and the orders and the, the eyewitness accounts of the Ottoman Muslim perpetrators. So we have this body of material. We have Talat Pasha's diary, you would call it. I mean, in British English, diary. Or we could call it his, his notebook. Let's call it his notebook. We have Talat Pasha's notebook. And it was published. And you, we can look at the figures that he records. How many Armenians were deported from here? How many from there? How many made it? And then how many returned after 1960? To use his figures and, and his estimates, Is very clear how many were deported and how many returned. If we use the figures, if we use the claims of the architect of the genocide, then you come up with that figure of 650,000 to 800,000.
0: Now, we've covered so much ground here and we've barely scratched the surface, such as the nature of the uh, the subject, I suppose. Is there anything that uh, you want to address in a bit more detail here that we haven't been able to cover or...
1: Uh, there is one theme of the book, a major thesis of the book that I don't think we've discussed in detail. I'll just mention it briefly. I want the reader to get the impression that the Ottoman Empire existed, the dynasty, one family ruled for, you know, six centuries. It's, It's a phenomenal achievement for one family to stay in power that long. But I also want to give the reader the impression that that rule wasn't always so solid. It wasn't determined. It wasn't you know, didn't have to be 600 years. There are many points in the history of the dynasty and the empire where things fell apart, where the dynasty could have ended from either external attacks or internal splits, or just sometimes the, abil- the inability to produce a male heir. The dynasty was far more fragile than we when we think about. It. And one of the Elements of society that kept the dynasty on its toes and constantly threatened in every era to overthrow it were these these deviant dervishes were these radical Sufis so these radical Sufis in every era were needed by the Ottomans to gain their blessing and because some of the different elements of society supported their beliefs and practices, but they also were always an element that could raise a rebellion that could assassinate the sultan, that could challenge his legitimacy to be on the throne, so that's also a theme that runs through the book: is the the danger of the deviant dervishes, and I and I document that in every era how there this this storm that the Ottomans have to be very careful about, and the revolutionary ideas that come from such thinkers before the Ottomans as Ibn Arabi are then used, manipulated, put into practice by dervishes who believe they should, they can, they must dethrone the sultan and, and sit in this place. And in the book, I even talk about a, a Jewish figure, Shabbatai Tzvi, who's again in this same stream of radical
0: mystics, who also believes that he should be the ruler. That was Mark David Bayer. Many thanks to him for joining for this episode number 154 Remember, if you enjoy Taki Book Talk, you can support it by joining as a member on Patreon. Membership gets you that 30% discount on all Turkey Ottoman history books published by I.B. Taurus and Bloomsbury, transcripts of every interview, transcripts of the entire archive of interviews, access to an archive of over 200 book reviews written by me and links via email to articles and other content related to the subject of each episode. For all that just go to Turkey Book Talk's Patreon account and pledge $3, €3 Euros or £2.50 per episode. Do also rate Turkey Book Talk on whatever podcast platform you use. Follow via our website turkeybooktalk.com or via Twitter or via our Facebook page or all of them. And I always enjoy hearing from listeners. So do send any recommendations, feedback or abuse to William John Armstrong at gmail.com. And finally, before I go, let me remind you once again to check out a friend of Turkey Book Talk, Turkey Recap. Turkey Recap is a weekly email newsletter that's put together by the journalist Diego Cupolo. It's a package bringing together all major developments in Turkey over the past seven days, links to interesting articles and some excellent puns. Go to turkeyrecap.com and follow the links there to subscribe. But until our next episode of Turkey Book Talk in a couple of weeks, thank you very much for listening.